it was an exceptional practice. We owned it for uh, a number of years, uh, nearly 17 years, and then ended up uh, selling in late 2020. Hello, welcome to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, the creators of the Market Penetration Roadmap. If you want to learn more about that, head on over to strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com. You can learn about the Market Penetration Roadmap and all things positioning strategy as you're entering a new market whether in the healthcare technology or device space or as a uh, clinical operations team. Alrighty, so this week we are back on track with a uh, an episode discussing the ins and outs of managing, scaling, growing a healthcare practice while at the same time maintaining relationships throughout the management process of, okay, we're hiring people. This is how we benchmark them, performance appraisals, all of that. And my guest this week, Mike Studer, who is a physical therapist, he sold his practice back in 2020. And he'll talk a little bit about the sale and what that looked like, how it went down, informing the team as he was going through the sales process and then kind of the transition period. What did it look like after the sale? Um, but we had a conversation and we really started chatting about what does it take to run a clinical, a private practice that delivers both high quality clinical care and strong relationships with your patients at the same time managing people, the HR side of things. How do we pay people? How do we uh, benchmark their performance? How do we hold them accountable? Are there different ways of structuring compensation packages that give clinicians a little bit more independence and a little bit more autonomy in how they do their schedules and how they deliver care and all of that. So Mike had some really interesting insights into uh, that whole piece, the whole the whole uh, interviewing, hiring, onboarding, and then paying clinicians to deliver care. He ran an organization I think at one point in time, he said they grew to three different buildings, three different departments. He had clinics all over the place or clinicians all over the place. And he himself was treating at a full caseload. So he never extricated himself from the actual care delivery. So even though he had three locations and a bunch of clinics working for him or clinicians working for him, he was still day to day, boots on the ground in the clinic every day with patients. And part of that is, he he mentions this in the interview, is that he just loves it. He is, and you can tell this by talking to him, he is an individual, a, a clinician, a physical therapist, who very much sees himself as a mentor, an educational provider, but ultimately somebody who's calling, if you would, their vocation, as a word my grandfather used to say a lot, his vocation, 
was that of being a physical therapist. And he, even today, he, he mentions at the very end of the interview, well, I'm flying here and I'm giving a talk on this and then I'm going to fly to Iceland. I'm going to give a talk over there and then I'm going to do this continuing education course and I'm also treating patients. The dude is just a high energy. He's got a, his hands in a lot of different uh, things and it's great to, it was great to have a conversation with him. Hopefully you walk away from the episode with some insights around managing, running, scaling a practice and thinking outside the box about the way you can do that um, if you want to, say, continue to treat full-time or if you want to put your effort into something else. Having some of those strategies that he came up with for how to effectively create intrapreneurs within his organization was was really interesting. So without further ado, here's Mike Studer talking about uh, running, scaling, growing, and selling a practice. Well, hey, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Rafi, and yourself? I'm doing wonderful. It is St. Patty's Day, so looking forward to getting down to the parade in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm excited to talk with you about, well, just about running a practice successfully, but then as we were talking before the show, brokering the relationship between owner and clinician and how that translates into the therapeutic relationship. But before we do any of that, get too into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what led you to what you're doing now? Great. So I've been a physical therapist for 32 years now. Uh, I'm very passionate in the arenas of neurologic and geriatric physical therapy, especially. Um, I opened a private practice that was just a head scratcher to even do this in 2004 because nobody opens an outpatient private neurology practice in 2004 especially in a one-horse town where there's one hospital that dominates everything and can control the referrals for all persons with stroke. But I did it at the insistence and support of my wife. It was uh, very successful, and we, by nature of doing things well, just expanded into orthopedics and eventually uh, sport performance. And uh, it was an exceptional practice. We owned it for uh, a number of years, uh, nearly 17 years, and then ended up uh, selling in late 2020 in a sale that was planned pre-pandemic. And so now I am a good employee to uh, you know other entities as an inpatient rehab physical therapist. Uh, I'm uh, on faculty for a number of different universities, adjunct, et cetera. I conduct research projects. And I lecture really all over the nation on neuro and Jerry as well as uh, overseas. Yeah. And you've got a, you did a TED talk, right? A TEDx talk on neuroplasticity. I did January of 2020. Yes. Remember that very well. And uh, I, that was a very fun experience. But yeah, if your listeners want to listen on that, that's a, uh, it's a big passion talk for me. Yeah. 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 We'll link to that in the show notes. So tell yeah. us then a little bit about, I guess just take us to from from starting the practice to growing it, and then kind of we'll talk about this managing relationships on all sides, on the clinical side, on the ownership, management, team side, and and all of that. Absolutely. So when we opened the practice, it was supposed to be just a place for me to be able to practice with patients in a one-on-one -on -one manner uh, in the contemporary fashion that I had been calling for at the hospital. So it was going to be small. We rented 12, 000, or 1,200 square feet. We had one receptionist. And if we stayed that size forever and I just was able to see patients with a well-equipped clinic, great. 
However, as a function of doing things well, as I mentioned earlier, we ended up hiring a few more people, geriatric clinical specialists, another neurologic clinical specialist. Then uh, physicians were asking us about uh, can they refer their persons with orthopedic impairments to us? So we began to accept that. We outgrew the first building and decided, okay, let's go ahead and build our own building. And so we built what we thought at that point was just going to be the end-all, be-all, 4,200 square feet, two oh, levels. Wow, yeah. We brought in occupational and speech therapy, and we filled that up before we knew it. So five years later, uh, we uh, built another building 250 feet away from that to house our orthopedic department, and we kept the original building. And then five years after that, we said, okay, we've outgrown that again. Let's do something different. Let's do the community a service and let's build a sports performance building. And we built that was 10,000 square feet so that, you know, high school athletes wouldn't have to drive 50 miles to be able to get expert help to improve their performance, injury prevention, et cetera. So there we are with three buildings totaling nearly 20,000 square feet. 51 employees, maybe even up to 55 employees at one time. My wife and I are largely running everything. And um, at that point, I really just said, okay, um, how long do I want to continue working 92 hours a week? Because yeah. my main passion is, uh, is treating patients. And so, you know, we'll, let's, I'll get into the uh, meat of the question that you had now, and that is how did we succeed? And what about the relationship between myself and my employees? Well, Rafi, I'll tell you, almost anybody that would walk into the clinic where I was working full-time as a therapist would have a really hard time saying, who's the leader here? Who's the boss here? Because uh, I'm working alongside everybody. Uh, I'm probably driving the least expensive car to get there. I'm getting there earlier. I'm staying later. And I'm also answering emails after. Um, I poured my heart and soul into this and I gave the people that I work with, I have a hard time calling them my employees because I, I, I just didn't feel that way. The people that I had a chance to work with, I gave them to really own their own practice inside our practice. So our therapists were actually paid on a per patient basis. You have a patient that shows up, you get paid, I get paid. You yeah. are not engaging your patient you don't get paid. I don't get paid. Uh, if you want to overlap a little bit by 15 minutes and feel like you can still create a patient engaging experience, then go ahead and overlap and I'll pay you for every single patient that you see uh, to the point that you can continue to do that and offer exemplary care that your patients want to come back. So your cancellation rate is not something I have to think about. It's something that you, we have to think about. So I'll stop there and turn it back over to you for questions because I could dive into that and talk yeah. about it for hours. Yeah, yeah no, I, that's an interesting way. You know, when you're talking about paying people, there's there's many different models, right? Like performance-based incentives and just paying hourly versus paying as you did for patient or just putting them on salary. And uh, I guess what was the the main drive behind doing the per patient thing? Was it because you wanted to be in a situation where they're the the physical therapist or the clinician had some skin in the game and it wasn't so much like I get my salary and then if I do really well, I get a bonus because some people are like, I don't care about the bonus. I'm getting paid well. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, it just comes down to golden rule for me. It's the way I wanted to be treated. And so that's the way I treated them too. Uh, and again, it, 
it levels the playing field. I'm not a guy that wants to actually go around and micromanage. I want to see my patients. That's why I opened my practice. I want to see my patients. So what would allow me to not have to think about numbers, productivity, units, et cetera? And I really never cared whether you were averaging 2.85 or 3.1 units uh, for your 45-minute visit. Didn't matter to me. What would be a way to allow somebody to have the same experience I was that I am incentivized and rewarded every time a patient comes in, comes back, speaks highly about me, sends a friend to me, and that was the model we arrived on. And my wife and I had zero experience in outpatient therapy at the time. I'm an inpatient therapist. Yeah. I'm a home health therapist. We walked in, and it was quite to our fortune that we just didn't know any better. And so we said, well, this makes sense. Let's pay people when they get uh, a patient. And so, again, it comes down to that treat people the way you want to be treated. And uh, that's what came out on the other side of the equation. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm assuming then that there wasn't like a, a big change down the line as you grew, right? Like you hear some people, they start with whatever payment model for their for their team members and then they grow and then like, okay, we're going to change into this. We're going to change into that. Now we're going to put in some like a performance-based incentive metrics or, or whatever. Did y'all just keep that same pay per patient throughout your, your growth and trajectory as we went from just you and, and maybe another person up to those 55 employees? Yeah. I'm, I'm so pleased that you asked that question because to start a patient's, uh, a therapist caseload, they never have enough patients to earn a full-time salary, yeah. right? So what do you do? There's the quandary. So we paid people hourly to start off with. And we paid them, let's say a therapist was getting $32 per 60 minutes, so the per hour, right? At some point when their caseload grows large enough, they were given the autonomy to retrospectively look back at the previous pay period and tell us, okay, we're right at the end of this pay period. You want to be paid hourly or by patient? Now, obviously, I'm going to pay you hourly $32 or I'm gonna pay you per 45 minutes per patient, $32. So at some point that equation is gonna turn into your favor fairly yeah. quickly. So we gave every single therapist, every discipline, the opportunity to tell us when they wanted to convert. And if they never wanted to convert, it stayed hourly. So we never had to have the discussion. Do you wanna do something different? Do you wanna get paid hourly? Because they were the ones that decided in the first place, they had autonomy. Now, it's a really good question to think about that whole broad scope. Well, wait a second. Could we go on a bonus basis? Well, I'm a softy, and uh, <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I would routinely go into performance evaluations, and I would think, okay, I've got a number for how much people are going to get a raise, and I would come out of it, and I would actually give them a greater uh, per-patient rate raised than I thought I was going to going in. Uh, and that's just, I mean, I just, I love people and I loved all of my employees and that's, it, it always worked out. My wife and I always felt like we had enough and it worked out, but you think to yourself, okay, what about a bonus model? Well, here's the problem that I had personally with the bonus model is behavioral economics, Rafi. Yeah. Do I work harder for something that is going to be a delayed gratification? Oh, I'll get a bonus at the end of the year. If I see one more patient tonight, uh, six more patients this week. I'll get a bonus at the end of the year. People want immediate gratification. You get, yeah. okay, we got a phone call that comes in at 345 and somebody's got benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Who wants to take the extra patient? Who wants to stay late? Well, 
if your gratification comes immediately, oh, I just earned another $34 because I'm going to stay late and take that person, boom. Then people accommodate. They want to see another person. They want to work through lunch to go ahead and see that patient or add them on at the end of the day versus the delayed gratification. So we never got into the situation of, I'll give you $500 more at the end of the year if you see you know, let's say 180 more patients. Well, you earn 180 more patients and I'll give you your hourly rate multiplied that 180. It's much better and much more temporal. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not waiting for the whole quarterly or year year end bonus then, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's human nature. And again, it comes down to what makes sense to human decision-making. Yeah. And how did you find, or did you find that that translated into like patient satisfaction, patient engagement, if the, if the clinicians are getting paid, I guess, by pay, by patient, is there an, an undue incentive for them to maybe say, all right, I'm going to cram as many as I can in here. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, cram four until patients that in doesn't an hour. Work. Until that doesn't work. Because at some point you actually cut off your nose to spite your face to pardon the expression, but then your patients don't feel engaged. So they yeah. no show you because you showed up late to your appointment because you didn't give them enough attention. And then you get zero dollars Yeah, because yeah. that person who was taking up your entire 45 minute slot didn't show up. So there's a huge loss on the backside of that. So that's not something I ever had to talk with people about. They uh, were able to actually just self-manage on that. And ultimately that's what we want. A professional is a professional. They should be afforded the opportunity to self-manage. Now, I understand I sold in November 2020. Uh, there may be people that are listening to this saying, well, that's Pollyannic. That would never work now. This is, the workplace has totally changed. And I'm not going to try to speak to uh, what's happening now. I'll just tell you, at the time that we were working on this, this was hugely to our advantage. I always knew that our reimbursement rate would give us an opportunity to be profitable doing this. And it, it worked out beautifully. And and I just, I can't be more thankful for uh, the time that I had to work with the people that I had to work with. And uh, we were able to exit in a gainful and profitable manner. Uh, and I feel like we turned over an exceptional company to the company that we sold to. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I'm going to ask a little bit about kind of just the running of the practice, and then we'll dive into the, into the relationship piece. So sure. um, it's interesting that you know, you, there's kind of both ends of the spectrum when you talk about people, clinicians in general, that start a practice. It's either people yeah. that they envision, you know, being being the CEO, not touching patients anymore, kind of building the systems and putting that in place and scaling an organization. And then people kind of on the other end, like you, that they're great clinicians and they want to keep treating patients the way they want to treat patients, the way the literature suggests they should treat patients. Um, was there ever for you personally, when you were going through this, like this almost like a, an internal struggle of, I know I'm the clinician, like that's what I want to do. I want to treat patients. I want to treat a full caseload. But at the same time, I need to pull myself out of patient care in order to manage the business. Or did you just bring on team members that were that became the practice managers? Yeah, we never brought on team members that were practice managers. It would have made some sense to maybe have a building director, uh, but, you know, I'm not as smart as a lot of my colleagues that figure out an exit strategy uh, and figure out a way to say, I need to extricate from myself. I've got a really, really good friend 
who's a practice owner uh, of multiple sites up in Seattle. And he's brilliant. He's much smarter than me. And he figured out a way to extricate himself out of patient care, have each site operate itself without him needing to be on site. And he has dramatically increased the value of his practice because it doesn't depend on him. Well, I'm the not quite as intelligent guy who thinks I could still do it all. I love it all. And I was yeah. so passionate to, to still be engaged with my patients because I love my patients. My cancellation rate, Rafi, for uh, 12 years running was under 1.5%. Oh, and wow, I'm seeing yeah. patients for 55 hours a week. I'm seeing patients, okay? But I am also the guy that thinks I can do it all and I love it all because I love my employees. Uh, and so I thought, you know, why hire other people to actually be an intermediary? I want to interview all the therapists that are coming on board with us. I want to do their performance evaluations. Uh, I want to actually still be hands-on. Well, at some point, just like you asked, did that come to a critical breaking? When we built our third building, and now this one's four and a half miles away, and here I am trying to treat patients full-time, when am I going to get over to that building? Yeah. So I started treating over there a day and a half a week and spreading myself a little bit thinner. I thought, Okay, I need to hire an actual practice manager that knows human resources, uh, that knows employee labor laws, and uh, can help us maximize our profitability, community relations, et cetera, because we, we spent zero dollars on marketing. And so I thought, okay, let's get somebody in here, and then I'll downshift off of my 92 hours a week. Well, the problem was um, we brought in somebody that was exceptional to do this, and I think I just found myself never really getting to the point that I could ever give up the 92 hours a week um, and never really because I loved it and not really from a control standpoint um, because I relinquished, you know, you supervise the reception staff and I'll check in on them. But I just every time something was taken off my plate that I was happy to release. I found another way to stay busier in the practice. <laughs> and so I, there was really going to be no stop to it. So I said, all right, you know what I love the most out of all of this is patient care. How about if we sell and then just become a great employee? And so that's really why we pivoted starting before the pandemic. Uh, and when I came back from combined sections meeting in February of 2020, before the pandemic had really hit the United States, um, I was already lined up to speak with a broker uh, and begin the sale of our company. And and the hardest thing about that, Rafi, was the people, the family yeah. that was our clinic. Okay, how am I going to express that to them? And everybody knew, hey, Mike's busting his back every single week. At some point, he needed to be able to do this. And it was very well received. I, again, I have to give credit to the people that uh, that I worked with. Uh, that we loved for so many years and I still have extremely close relationships with. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit then. So the the relationships, um, I heard somebody say one time that you know, obviously we hear like the team is the family, we're building a, a strong culture and, and all of that kind of stuff. But at some level, you know, work is work and there is a delineation in the types of relationships and especially when it comes to managing people and performance appraisals and stuff like that like you can fall into having what's called like a very tolerant culture where mm -hmm. you know people are screwing up and they're they're clearly not meeting benchmarks and it's okay because we're all family and it sinks the business 
And then mm -hmm. there, you can go the other way where it's too legalistic, right? This, this is the letter of the law and you fail to meet it, you're gone, you're out of here. Um, right. How do you find the best way to kind of manage that dynamic in a place where it sounds like y'all were all very close and you're working alongside of the people that you're that are on your team, um, keeping it both personal, but also like there's this is a professional organization and there are, you know, there are some standards and requirements that we're that we're wanting to maintain. Yeah, I wish I could write you a book on this and, and tell <laughs> you that here's the science and here's the recipe. But let me tell you, um, everybody throughout our entire business for the entire history knew if there was ever a question, should we build this? Should we build that? Is this the right way to practice? How do we speak to people on the phone? How do I speak to my patients? You got a couple of quick things that people can always go back to that was an employee handbook that was living. And that is what would Mike do? All right. And I don't want to make it sound, you know, like a, you know, a what would Jesus do type <laughs> of thing. But I, I actually modeled this uh, for people because I'm in the trenches working with them. And uh, when I was on site, I could listen to what was happening throughout the building. And I would love the fact to have uh, the opportunity to have a coachable moment with somebody in reception and to be able to have a coachable moment with one of my colleagues too. So there's, there's, there's the standard that I was always living and modeling. That was really helpful. And that gave, I believe, the employees an opportunity to have such an inherent pride in the company that they could always allow their internal mores to determine what was the right thing to do. This person uh, you know, had difficulty coming up with their payment. All right, we'll catch you next time. Um, all right, let's create a financial policy for you. We're going to find a way to help you. So we we made the opportunities right there, and I empowered every single employee to do the right thing. No matter what was going to be the financial consequences, they always knew you just do the right thing with this person right here, right now. And when you have that piece of a culture, you don't have people being you know punitive if you made a mistake. So there's that permissive culture, uh, you know, versus the, you know, very uh, legalistic culture. Those two ends of the pendulum, like you're talking about, people knew, okay, I am not going to get punished if I make a mistake. Uh, I am not going to get talked down to if this is going to end up being a financial loss to the company. I'm going to sit right here and do the right thing with the person that's right here in front of me. And it's amazing how wide of a swath that cuts, Rafi, because yeah. you can, if you give people that latitude and that permission, the individual who is being served, this is a service organization, the individual who's being served knows oh, they're going to spend an extra 15 minutes getting it right for me. The person at the reception desk is going to spend eight minutes trying to find a ride for me rather than saying, I'm sorry, I've got to get to the next patient. So we've really got a, a huge swath where the human being is allowed to actually serve uh, at all levels, reception, therapist, et cetera. So I think that's what really kept us from being legalistic and permissive uh, to the point that we eroded because everybody says uh, every mistake is okay everywhere. Yeah. And so it's pride. It's the pride of the company and it's the model. Yeah. How much when it came time to thinking about selling and getting, you know, exiting the business and all that, how how transparent were you with the team leading up to it? Or was it one of those you you kind of thought about it for a while, put the put the put the pieces in place or um, 
was there some lead time where you had maybe identified a few key employees who were going to be leaders in the organization after you left that you were going to train up and you brought them into the loop and said, listen, this is the plan I'm going to be selling. And this is, you know, we want you to take over or to start taking these responsibilities. Was there much thought about that? Or was it kind of like, I've decided to sell, we're going to go through with it and then kind of fill the team in later? Yeah, that's the toughest question you've asked yet. And I'll tell you, Rafi, I'm a person who constantly looks back at his life and says, mistake, I can do better. Mistake, I can do better. Um, I love that. Let's do more of this. Uh, and I'm always trying to be very humble to understand uh, the my own fallibilities. And I'll tell you, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made in the ownership is not communicating to my employees, the family, soon enough that I was planning on selling, okay? They always, always relied on me to be transparent to a fault. I mean, I'm emailing at 10, 15 at night, letting them know, hey, I'm thinking about building a third building, you know, and I was, you know, uh, probably more communicative than I should have been throughout the entire practice. However, when it came time to sell, I began that decision in February, uh, started to interview the respective suitors, if you will, uh, really very fervently in May through August, um, came to a culminated decision, I think probably late August of 2020, uh, committed to the sale at that point. And then um, we were uh, requested by the company that I sold to not to actually tell the employees until we had a hard date that it was going to be able to transact. And then until we could actually bring that company's representatives on site. So I listened to my new partners, uh, the company I was selling to, and I didn't trust my own normal instinct and gut. Hey, let's let these folks in on this. You've been transparent throughout the entire ownership. And so I didn't do what I normally would have done, listen to somebody else. And there were no ramifications, but it didn't feel right to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had to have that, you know, talk with everybody that was able to be present, you know, within, I don't know what it was, recollections poor on that two or three weeks from the actual transaction date. Oh, wow. I would have loved to do it three months beforehand, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, how about the transition after the after the sale? Do you stay on for a period of time afterwards? Because I mean, you're you're treating a full caseload, so I imagine they wanted you around for a while. Um, and then, was there part of that transition? Did that involve training some of your your teammates to kind of take over your role or take over some of the management roles, or did the the buying organization kind of come in and put their own managers in place? Yeah, I'll tell you that was done extremely well, and. Uh... You know, I literally shifted from, and I, I would do hourly studies on myself. I literally shifted from the 92 hours a week and I negotiated to the point where I would work 35 hours a week. And that's just, that's unheard of. Uh, yeah. I don't know what I was going to do with myself. So I went back and got a DPT in the singular <laughs> year of 2021. I said, okay, all right, I know these, this is supposed to take two and a half years. I think I can do this in a year with the amount of time that I've got. So there is that. So that's, I had to keep myself busy yeah. so that I didn't interfere with the transitional process. The transitional process went extremely well because we took some of our top employees at each building and gave them the directorship of that building. Uh, then, uh, you know, and that was a decision that I supported. 
uh, helped to facilitate, but I didn't have to make the decision. I let other people do the interview. We had an exceptional um, regional director that came in and was able to basically create that blend between the large company and our local company, really helped to support our, uh, our building directors. That was done extremely well. We got a, uh, a director of the uh, reception staff then too. And so between my wife, the reception staff director and the three building directors, they had a, just a wonderful team that uh, communicated with this uh, regional director. And I'll tell you, that process was just so beautiful. And that team was just so solid. Now, to answer your question, um, I was contracted to stay on for two years, had full intent of doing that. Um, we won't get into the particulars there, but January of uh, 2022, I gave the company one year notice and said, okay, we've only been into this for, you know, whatever, 14 months right now. But in a year from now, January 2023, I will have fulfilled my two year commitment with you. And I'm going to move to another state. But I want to give you a one year notice because again, transparent Mike, yeah. there's the guy doing that. Um, that did not work out so well, wasn't received so well that I was going to be uh, leaving in a year. And uh, it, it ultimately culminated in my uh, exodus uh, earlier than that one year time frame. And so that's that's kind of a murky story on that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sitting here in Las Vegas, Nevada right now, which is where we live now. Nice. And like I said, I'm just being a good employee to, uh, you know, other uh, entities and uh, getting an opportunity to just uh, see patients and concentrate on that. Yeah. And you're also, you teach some continuing education courses, don't you? Yeah. So I teach continuing education courses. Uh, so tomorrow morning, I'll teach from 7.30 to 2.30 from my house. Uh, and uh, then I'll hop on a plane on Thursday and teach continuing education course in Pennsylvania for the American Geri or the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy. Um, and then shortly after that, I'll hop on a plane and go to Iceland to teach for uh, three days uh, as their speaker for their National Physiotherapy Conference. So I could go on and on about that. So I'm literally overseas and over across all yeah. states and also teaching from the house. But I also teach for universities too. And I, I love all of it. Uh, it's still it's still just me just reinventing the same thing. I'll find a way to fill up my hours yeah. somehow. And, and uh, But I love all of it still. 32 years later, I couldn't be more excited about physical therapy than I was then. Yeah. So <laughs> I was going to ask you, well, like, what are you doing now after the sale? But it sounds like you're, you're very, very busy. Um, yeah. I guess the question I'll ask you what people ask me every now and then is like, where do you find the time to do so much? Because it sounds like you've got your hand. I mean, you're treating patients, you're teaching at a university. You know, I was at a university too, and that takes time to grade papers and read research stuff. And, yes. <laughs> and then you're teaching courses. So um, I guess what's one, what is the drive behind doing all that? Um, and then two, like, how do you make that work with your, just your personal and your work-life balance that we hear so much about these days in, in, the, in the mainstream media? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I'll tell you, it's 5.30 a.m. my time when you and I started this interview. Yeah. That's part of it. So um, whether it is a placebo effect or there is such a thing, um, if you research the concept of super sleeper, uh, I am one of those. So uh, it's a fairly well-established fact that 
some people can actually get by on four and a half hours of sleep. Those people, by the research studies, are marathoners. They're optimistic people. Uh, they are enthusiastic and they're entrepreneurial. Well, that defines That's, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so here's the secret. The, the secret is I'm very lucky genetic, genetically. Um, I had a tremendous example in front of me with my parents who have wonderful work ethic. And the thing is, I love to work and love to be productive. Now, along the ways, um, here's the situation where I can actually be awake for 19 and a half hours a day and get as much done as somebody who's only awake for 16 hours a day. That just means uh, I'm below average intelligence, exceptional <laughs> off the chart worth ethic, and it takes me 19 and a half hours to get done what everybody else could do in 16 hours. Okay, but the reality is I'm always looking for a way to contribute. And I am exhilarated and impassioned by, you know, doing a project here at the house with my wife, um, you know, going out and planning a fun adventure, but I'm just as excited by, you know, creating a research project and et cetera. So where do I find the time? I don't sleep very much. I exercise a ton, which gives me a ton of energy. I eat extremely well. Um, and I love life and I love innovating. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly high on dopamine, I think. Yeah. So that's, that's what it is. Awesome. Well, Mike, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time. Where can people find out about you, about your courses? whatever you've got, wherever you've got them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I don't put out a lot about myself. Uh, so I'll just tell you, email me directly. It's just my name, Mike at mikestuder.com. So Mike at mikestuder.com. That's also my website. And I put up a decent number of blogs there. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, and I'm probably most active there a little bit on Instagram as well. And so that's Mike Studer DPT is my uh, Instagram. And then you can easily search me, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, but anyway, I, I just, uh, and you can look up my Ted talk, etc. So, uh, I'm easily findable, but I just don't put a lot of uh, information out there. There's no calendar of where's Mike going next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you email me, I can get that to you as well. I can easily be found on MedBridge. That's probably my greatest collection of library as far as uh, all my con ed courses as well, though, too. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. Rafi, I appreciate it. And thanks so much for uh, providing the space. And uh, thanks to your listeners who uh, are uh, spending their time listening to the podcast as well. Awesome. All right. Take it easy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Studer talking about the whole process of building and scaling his practice, running and managing the team while also carrying a full uh, outpatient physical therapy caseload and then selling it and what he's doing now and kind of just the process of it all, right? Um, it's interesting to have conversations with people about running a business in general, running a, a practice, because you've got one, and he even mentions that one of his friends does this, you, you've got one uh, aisle, if you would, or one side of the coin that says you should absolutely extricate yourself from practice because it's going to make your business more valuable and you'll be able to walk away after a sale. And then you've got people like Mike who feel that they're, they're calling their, their so much of their identity is wrapped up in being the clinician that they are the opposite direction, right? They're going to treat and they're going to the, the business or the, the practice, if you would, is really just an avenue for them to deliver clinical care. 
Um, and not that there's one one right way or one wrong way. I think you just have to understand and recognize the trade-offs in either of those cases, right? If there is truth to the fact that if you are completely extricated from the practice, from running the practice or treating the patients, that you can command a higher multiple and you can walk away sooner after a sale. Uh, many of the folks that have been on the show previously, you know, Will Humphreys, uh, Dave Kittle, Mike Pekatowski, even Jerry Durham, to some extent, has been talking about it recently on the interwebs. That is a big, that's a that's a real thing that buyers are looking at and uh, assessing when they look at making an offer and what the post-closure or post-sale agreements look like is how involved or is the principal or is the owner in the day-to-day either running of the practice or delivering of the care. So, um, because again, healthcare is a relationship business and just from a practical standpoint, if all of the relationships, the referral relationships, the patient relationships are held with one individual, then that that one individual is very valuable. The business itself might not be as valuable if they leave. <laughs> so you've got to allow some a certain amount of transition time. So anyways, just an interesting uh, thing to think about there. Mike also does have a good TEDx talk on uh, neuroplasticity and and the brain, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. We'll link to his website, uh, which is mikestuder.com, where he posts his blog articles and then all his information about speaking and continuing education courses and all that. So if you want to go find him, you can do that at mikestuder.com. All righty. I think that's it for this episode. Over the next several episodes, we're lining up conversations and interviews with folks in the healthcare technology space. We are wrapping up the first part of a what's going to be probably a series of surveys in specifically physiotherapy, because that's my background, um, physiotherapy space on Uh, remote therapeutic monitoring, remote patient monitoring, telehealth, virtual service delivery. And we'll be sharing some of those results either on the podcast or or through a webcast or something like that, maybe even a report. Um, We'll kind of see how it goes. So if you're interested in that, head on over to, you can just find me on LinkedIn, Raphael E. Salazar II, and I've got links to the the survey if you want to fill it out and be a participant or just shoot me an email, Raffi at RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. Alrighty, until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.